Let's pray as we come to think about this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would speak, that we would listen, and that we would be changed as we hear from you this morning in your word. Amen. Now, I, um, when it comes to learning languages at school, I think there are uh, two types of people in the world. There are people who are good at it, and there are people who are like me, who sadly wrestled their way through GCSE French with little more than being able to ask for directions to the train station or being able to wax lyrical about going to the cinema with your brother. Now, one thing I do remember is conjugating verbs. So that send a shiver down your spine? You know, where you work through the various forms of a doing word, particularly thinking about the different tenses that that word appears in. So here's um, an example in the past tense. Here we go. J'ai aimé, tu as aimé, il, elle a aimé. I liked, you liked, he or she liked. Or in the future tense, j'aimerais, tu aimeras, il, elle aimera. I will like, you will like, he or she will like. Past tense, future tense. What's the big tense that's missing? Uh, given that I can't see you, I'm going to take it on trust that you got it right. So I'm going to say, yes, it's the present tense. I like, you like, he or she likes. The present tense is the first tense that you learn. But here's the question and the point. When it comes to Jesus, how much do you think about him in the present tense? We're pretty good, I think, about putting Jesus in the past tense. <laughs> We're absolutely right to do so. His work 2,000 years ago, finished, completed, done, magnificent. We're great at putting Jesus in the past tense. I think we're also pretty good at putting Jesus in the future tense, you know, thinking about when he returns to judge the world and bring in the new creation. But what about Jesus in the present tense? How often do you put him there? I'm thinking particularly about Jesus's work as the God-man, the incarnate in the flesh in as a as a man second person of the trinity as god of course he's always in the present tense he's the great i am but i'm thinking about him as a man and the reason why i want to talk about the present tense is because after jesus rose from the dead he ascended that is he went up into heaven at the start of the book of acts we read that peter was one of those who saw him taken up into a cloud now, Jesus' ascension, he's going up into heaven, doesn't mean he literally went out of the atmosphere and is now parked somewhere by Jupiter. No, in the Bible, up is the direction of majesty, of exaltation. Even this morning, Jesus is, he is seated at the Father's right hand on the throne of heaven. And in our passage today, Peter is very clear, verse 22, that final verse, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. Peter is very clear, Jesus might be out of sight, but he is not out of mind and not out of reality. He is very real. In heaven, he is our priest, our advocate, and indeed, particularly in 1 Peter, he is our present king. Now, Peter, you know, a book all about waiting for the future, but for Peter, I think we wait well for the future when we understand what is already real and true. The evil forces arrayed against the church as it tries to live faithfully have already been defeated by Jesus. He rules over every power and every authority. We're just waiting for the full effects. 
Why is this helpful? Well, remember, Peter is writing to weirdos. Admittedly, that's not quite the term he uses for Christians, but hey, the shoe fits. Really, the terms he uses are elect exiles, aliens and strangers, people who don't fit in anywhere because ultimately they don't belong. Now, in the Old Testament, when God's people are in exile, they cry out in a psalm, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, through the prophets, the people learn that God is with them, present to them and with them wherever they are. And Peter today wants us to grasp exactly the same thing. In a letter written to help Christians sing the Lord's song in a strange land, he wants us to know Jesus is in the present tense. Peter saw how powerful this was for his friend and fellow worker, Stephen, who was the first person to die because he was a Christian. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was facing death, the ultimate persecution, but we read that he faces it with steadfast hope. Why? Well, Acts tells us, by God's grace, he was given a vision of Jesus in the present tense. This present reality, verse 22 here in 1 Peter 3, Jesus at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And as Stephen's earthly life is smothered under the rocks thrown to kill him, he is fixed in his faith because he sees Jesus as he is now. And really, that's the thread today. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we stay, stay strong as a Christian, even though the world is against us? Jesus is in the present tense. Whatever the darkest, scariest place or situation you can imagine, Jesus has already won. He has beaten it. He is king over it right now. So that's the thread we're going to follow. There's loads of stuff in this passage um, you saw as we were going through it. I'm not going to try and get through everything in the same detail. There, there are Hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll touch on some stuff and you can go away and think, think more about it afterwards. There are three main sections really in this passage, verses 8 through to 12, 13 through to 17, and then 18 through to 22. So we'll kind of split, split it up and say, try and say something about each. So first in verses 8 to 12, live like Christ in the church and in a hostile culture. The big idea in verse eight really is about life in the church. Peter has already spoken about what it means to be church. Many bricks, one temple, many priests, one priesthood, many citizens, one holy nation. But he's also spoken of us in a number of ways, sorry, in a number of places in this way already. Very big New Testament idea. He's spoken about us as family. In this list, notice there are five words and the middle of the five, number three, is brotherly love. And this is a big deal. Family means commitment to one another. Being part of a congregation isn't like choosing a gym or a football club or a school. We're not consumers when we come to church. We're family. And the call is to love one another deeply. Either side of brotherly love, we've got words that speak about intimate feeling, have sympathy, have a tender heart. We shouldn't keep each other at arm's length, even if at the moment the only arms we have are digital. And then on, on the very ends of it, have unity of mind, have a humble mind. This is how we should approach our life in the church. Just as badly fitting bricks make a wobbly temple, so unloving siblings make a fragile family. Peter is talking about harmony, about peace. At root, St. John's Dancher Hill we are fundamentally in it together, come what may. 
That doesn't mean papering over the cracks. It doesn't mean ignoring sins and things that need addressing, but it means we look at each other, even if it's just down a camera like this, and say, I will give of myself for your good. And particularly as we enter a new phase of pandemic living, maybe you should ask yourself, and I'll be asking myself, maybe after the sermon, spend some time praying about this and write down, what am I going to change in order to love my church family better? What am I going to change? What positive thing am I going to do to love my church family better? What is that going to look like for you? Our divided world will notice a unity that makes no sense apart from the gospel and a hope that looks beyond the world. And it will ask questions. That's what verse 15 supposes. Anyone who asks for a hope, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our love for each other is one of our most powerful tools for mission. So let's not leave it locked down. Now, this oneness of family probably does, quite possibly does, carry on into verse 9 as well. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So certainly in the church, don't let bitterness or division ruin the church. The church should be a hub of grace and forgiveness, but it's wider than just in the church. That's what Peter's getting at. He's saying a Christian in all spheres should be someone who loves their enemies, even their enemies, and should let that love show itself. Just a, a quick um, disclaimer or very important point to make. This is not a command for a free pass to turn an eye to injustice, to turn a blind eye, sorry, to injustice. He is not saying that you should leave yourself in danger if you or someone else is being hurt or abused, whether within the church or outside. That's not what Peter's saying here. What he is saying primarily is encouraging a radical posture of grace towards anyone and everyone particularly anyone who does you wrong because you're a Christian who obeys God's word. Say that again. Peter encourages a radical posture of grace towards anyone, particularly if they treat you badly because you're a Christian obeying God. And what he's saying is we need to replace our inner need to get even or, or get on top with a genuine love for the other. Now, the, the primary example of this, apart from, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, I've already mentioned him, the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter seven. There he was in front of a court giving a defense for why um, he was a Christian and following Jesus. And, and that shows it's OK to make use of good legal channels. But he was committed to this principle. Whatever the decision, it, well, basically, it did go against him. He was a victim of vile injustice. But. Stephen, seeing Jesus in the present tense at God's right hand, he looked at the people, reviling him and doing him evil, and he blessed them. As he died at their hand, he prayed for their forgiveness. Peter says, repay hatred with love. Return a blessing for a heap of curses. It will stand out and it will get you noticed it's not how the world works. One story um, that I came across, a more recent story, there was a Christian soldier who was uh, living in a barracks and every evening he read his Bible and prayed before going to bed and another soldier sleeping across the aisle would treat him horribly, shouting horrible things at him, doing all kinds of nasty things. And one night this hostile soldier threw a pair of muddy boots at the Christian. How would you respond to that? How did this Christian soldier respond? The next morning that hostile soldier woke up and found his boots perfectly clean and polished at the foot of his bed. 
Karen Jobes is the, the scholar who tells this story and she finishes it by reporting this. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of one who could return blessing for an insult. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not revile when you're reviled, but bless. And Peter goes on, the reason why you don't need to fight for the world's blessing, preserving your reputation or being seen to get a good comeback in or whatever it is, is because you have already obtained a much better blessing already if you're a Christian. So live like it. And that's where this big chunk of Psalm 34 comes in. Now, if you didn't have the whole psalm in mind, these bits seem odd. They seem a bit like a promise that if you live well, you won't have a hard life. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Speak truth, not lies. And sort of the implicit thing, maybe you say, well, if you have a hard life, does that mean you've not lived well? But because we've read the psalm, Psalm 34, we can see it's actually quite different. That is a psalm all about how God's people suffer. They suffer hard times. They suffer opposition. But God's promises of salvation and blessing are better than anything else. The promise of the psalm is the gospel. God will deliver his people from all their afflictions. And so this little bit that we've got in 1 Peter 3 is basically saying, live well because it's right. That's what God wants you to do, not because it's easy. It's how you live as someone who already belongs to God. So God is saying here, don't feel the need to retaliate or vindicate yourself just for a fleeting moment of the world's approval or society around you. There is only one opinion of you that matters, and it is God's. And if you are in Christ, then God says of you, I approve. Righteous. Mine. And suddenly, knowing that, you're freed from needing to be vindicated, um, made to look good in the eyes of that group, that person, that authority, whatever it is. You can bless even your enemies because you don't need their good opinions or their words to define your identity. Your identity in Christ is perfect already. And the promise of the psalm, as I said, the promise of the gospel, God will always deliver his people. Verse 12 is just lovely, isn't it? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't think that people who do horrible things will get away with it. The Lord is against them. Someone once said, not a blow reaches us, which he does not notice. Maybe this morning you are one of God's redeemed people. Yeah, that's what it means to be righteous. You just need to hear this present tense reality. He hears you. He sees you. He is ever present to you, ready to listen to your prayer. So live like Christ in the church and in the culture, even next section, verses 13 to 17, when it's really hard. Singing the Lord's song will bring trouble but don't fall silent. Now, Peter is writing just before the horrific Roman persecution broke out against the church across the empire in the late 60s, because otherwise the answer, to, the answer to verse 13 is actually pretty straightforward. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? Well, after Emperor Nero and others, people would say, well, it's that guy, <laughs> the one burning Christians alive in order to light up his garden party, him. Or maybe today, that, that one putting Christians in labour camps until they die. Or, or, or that person bulldozing and burning down churches. They're the ones who are, who are going to harm us if we're zealous for doing good. At the time Peter is writing, Christians are probably 
that kind of level of persecution is probably starting to edge up in different places, but mainly it's suspicion and slander. But the thing is, Peter knows, because you can see from the next verse, and Peter listened to Jesus, who said this very thing, tough times will come to any Christian who wants to live faithfully. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Living righteously will lead to hard times. And it's interesting that it's kind of this living righteously. Because we want to say, yes, speaking out about Jesus specifically, explicitly, calling people to worship him as God and look to him only for salvation, that is, that is going to cause trouble. But, but Peter's spreading the net slightly wider in terms of how we're not going to fit in. Living according to values that conflict with the surrounding culture, pursuing righteousness, obedience to God's word, will bring trouble. The church will stick out. It is countercultural. It has always been a threat to at least some contemporary values, and it will suffer for it. And verse is three to four of chapter four. Um, Peter explains this a bit more. He talks about don't do what the Gentiles want to do. That is the non-believers living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter, Peter's saying there and, and here more generally, getting it in the neck because we don't live in the same way as the world around us isn't a sign that we failed to be relevant. And we need to be, I think, a bit bolder about this. Yes, we shouldn't be personally offensive. Look at verse 16 of our passage. Speak the gospel with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Um, yes, we, we should be known for our love for others and our gentleness. In fact, so known for it that it's shameful when we're slandered because people are offended by our Christian values. And, and Peter has already said something similar in chapter two. So, yeah, we are not going to be personally offensive as we do this. That, that is our goal, to be above reproach as we live in this countercultural way. But still, Peter seems to think that even by saying, you know, I don't live like this or I, I don't sign up to everything that's valued in the world around me, people will object and they will act on their objections. For instance, making a sacrificial choice about leisure or school or whatever, so you don't miss church on Sundays might cause tension. I have a friend whose son, a teenage son, is a very, very good footballer. And yet his son has made the decision that he's not going to go to the training or play the games on Sundays because he wants to be in church. He has suffered for that decision. He has had a lot of kickback, no pun intended, for it. And yet he knows that is what it means to be a Christian, to expect that kind of conflict. Don't go looking for it, but just know it will come. So maybe you don't, you don't join in the drinking culture. Peter references that in the next chapter or backstabbing culture. You don't celebrate sexual promiscuity culture, whatever it is, wherever you find yourself alongside people with different values. Peter is saying, and he goes into more detail later, but he's saying if you live committed to the holiness, which he's commanded in chapter one, you will face pressure to stop being such a weirdo. And whatever that pressure looks like, However unpleasant it is, here's Peter's point, it is not a sign that you've made the wrong choice in trusting God. In fact, Peter says it's a sign you have made a very good decision indeed. You are blessed, he says. And you might think, well, it doesn't look like it. And that's because in a social media age, we use the word blessed in a rather 
crude kind of way. You know, share a picture of smiling children, new shoes, big garden, little waistline. Hashtag blessed. We use the word to describe having good stuff. Well, Peter here is basically quoting from Jesus in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is listing all the things that mean you are blessed if you follow him. And one of those is being you're blessed if you have a hard time for being a Christian. How does that make sense? Well, to be blessed in the full biblical sense is to belong to God and have his favour. So if you have a hard time because you're living as someone who belongs to God, it's a sign of your blessedness. So Peter says, don't be afraid of pressure to conform. Don't be intimidating to intimidated into finding meaning and security where your friends, family or colleagues find it. And that's what he means in the next bit of verse 14 and the start of verse 15. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter eight. And, and maybe if you, you keep your eye on one Peter, I'll read from a few verses from Isaiah chapter eight. The Lord here is speaking to the prophet Isaiah about unbelieving people and their reliance on military strength. To keep them safe and he says this do not call this is isaiah now um, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread but the lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy let him be your fear let him be your dread can you see how peter is using isaiah there get your fears in order Yes, there are real things to be afraid of. Disease, debt, despair, death. Four massive ones right now, and they are not minor matters. But there is something even more pressing than these. It is how you stand with God. And no doubt Peter has in mind here Matthew 10, verse 28, where Jesus Christ says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. Jesus Christ's words. The world might condemn you, but if you trust in Jesus, God won't. And basically Peter's saying, that's what matters. God is saying to us today, don't think that the most immediate is the most important. Through God's eyes, you are blessed. So don't be troubled when you're told you're on the losing side. Jesus is in the present tense to. And that really brings us to our final point. So live like Christ in the church and culture, even when it's hard, because Jesus is in the present tense and he has already won. He's not some ancient guru whose teachings are to be cherry picked and fed into a good life. He's not some vague, wishful thinking kind of hope for the future that everything might pan out okay. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, even this morning. He is on the throne. So therefore, as you face pressure to conform, Peter says, don't fear those fears. The fears of the world around you. Fear God by bowing the knee to the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. That's what he means in verse 15. Honour Christ the Lord as holy. And he says we're to make reasonable sense of the reason for our hope. So then the question is, what is the reason for our hope? And it's there in verses 18 to 22. Why be willing to suffer for Christ? Why have such a hope that suffering for Christ actually means blessing? Why is death no longer the ultimate fear for the Christian? Because Jesus lived, died, rose again and went up into heaven so that sinners could be saved and brought into the very home of God. Christ 
suffered for sins, verse 18. The righteous man for unrighteous people. In an unrepeatable, unique moment, Jesus, who is both God and man, took upon himself divine judgment at the cross. So my selfishness, my pride, my lack of love, my wrong desires, my temper, my envy, my lack of contentment, my sloth and sinful busyness, my failures, my guilt, and my shame, I can get rid of that pronoun, mine, because they're no longer mine. Without committing them himself, Jesus took them from me and took them to the cross, so that the judge of all the earth would have his justice satisfied and could shower me with the blessing he reserves for his son. How can a sinner like me have hope? How can a sinner like you have hope that God can promise his own infinite joy as an inheritance? Because of Jesus. And as we see in this passage, it's not just his death, but his resurrection and his going up, his ascension into heaven. This is how he brings us to God. Smashing through the grave, he takes our human nature, body and soul, glorified and goes into heaven and sits at the father's right hand and united with him we go too this is the pledge that makes our resurrection certain one old hymn says this you have raised our human nature on the clouds to god's right hand there we'll sit in heavenly places there with you in glory stand jesus reigns adored by angels Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in your ascension, we by faith behold our own. Now, when we have these big moments of the gospel in our minds, we can have a stab at, at what these verses mean. Let's be honest, when they were read, we probably thought, this sounds a little funny. What spirits? Which prison? Hold on, where did Noah come from? What? Why is baptism like a boat? And it's fair enough if we did. These are probably the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament. But thinking about those big moments, death, resurrection, ascension, actually helps. So at the end of verse 18, being made alive in the spirit, well, that's really crucial to understanding what's going to come next. And this is the key thing, really. It probably doesn't mean he was alive in his soul because he always was alive in his soul. Now, yes, in the Apostles' Creed, that creed we, we sometimes say, you may remember the line we confess of Jesus, he descended to the dead. Sometimes he descended to Hades, sometimes even he descended to hell. And on Holy Saturday, that's the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus' soul, I think you can piece together from the New Testament, did go to this place, this place of the dead. But I don't think that that is what Peter is saying here. Why? Well, because when he says Jesus was made alive in the spirit, like other places in the New Testament, it's more likely to be talking about resurrection, which happens by the Holy Spirit into Holy Spirit glorified eternal life. In the New Testament, flesh and spirit with a capital S, I think it should have a capital S, is kind of this present age and then the new age of the new creation where death is gone and we will live forever. That is the, the age, the life of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So 
if Jesus is made alive in the spirit, well, it's almost certainly talking about Jesus's resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so then after that, verse 19, in which or in whom he went. Notice he went comes after he was made alive in the spirit. So it happens after his resurrection. And and this is this is interesting that the word for went is exactly the same. If you look at verse 22 as the word gone, gone into heaven. So if you ignore the rest of verse 19 through to 21 for now, what he's saying is this. You have Good Friday put to death in the flesh. Easter Sunday made alive in the spirit 40 days after Easter Sunday ascension day jesus went he has gone into heaven that's what went me he went into heaven now you might be asking should i be crossing out the rest of verse 19 through to 21 in my bible then no don't don't do that um i'm just trying to make sense of the whole passage and so then let's let's have a look at them then how does jesus's ascension his going relate to the proclaiming that we see in verse 19 well, basically, I, th I think this makes sense. Jesus preaches or proclaims by his ascension. As he is exalted into heaven, he is announcing he has won. The spirits in prison are probably fallen angels, evil spiritual forces who oppose God and his plan for humanity. And, and Peter probably has Noah in mind because that was a crucial moment in world history for human evil and God's judgment. And therefore, when Jesus ascended into heaven, it's like he was saying, see, I have won. You were wrong. And we know, don't we, that actually, you know, we can do things that make a statement. We, we all know that kind of phrase. So and so is making a statement by doing this action. Well, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus's ascension is itself a proclamation of victory. Not even the deepest evil can stand in the way of God getting what he wants. And I think that is how baptism saves. Not because water washes away death, like water wa washes away dirt, but because baptism is connected to being united to Christ. And when he rose from the waters of judgment, he took us with him. And so through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we come to God. And just look at that final line of verse 22. All powers and authorities that want to crush the church have already been subjected to Jesus. Jesus is vindicated. He has won. We're just waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Imagine this, this image to close. A shepherd who goes down the hill to find his lost sheep. There it is in the watery ditch. He wades in, flings the sheep over his shoulder and marches straight back up the hill to the top. Jesus came down, went through the toxic waters of judgment and came out the other side with you, with me, flung over his shoulder. And he ascended in glory right into the throne room of heaven where he is today, keeping for us an inheritance that can never spoil, fade or perish. So don't be afraid of what the world fears. Don't listen when you're told you're on the losing side. Through a life of love and bold proclamation, tell the world you belong to Jesus because he is very much in the present tense and he has already won. Let's pray. I'm going to pray by reading the final part of Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen.